Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I got a point of etiquette question for you. All right, hit me. Do you think it is polite to show up to work wearing a ski mask? Mm, a, a full ski mask? Uh, Assuming you, you don't have a reason, like you don't you don't have burns or something like that. Or, if, you know, if you maybe if you work at a... You know, an Antarctic research facility, and you have to walk across, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the barren wastelands. No, I can think that would be okay. I'm saying more like you work in an office, or maybe you you know you work at Walmart. Um, yeah, I'd say that this is a terrible idea. Uh, you should not wear that full ski mask to work uh, because people are going to assume that you are hiding your identity and possibly about to rob the place. Yeah, that seems pretty obvious. But do you ever stop to think, like, wait a minute, why biologically is that the case? Why is it that Hiding your face Mm -hmm. is an extreme social taboo, whereas hiding other parts of your body is not. Like it's not a taboo to wear a shirt to work or to wear gloves to work. I mean you'd you'd expect certain parts of the body to be covered and people could potentially identify you by other parts of your body than your face. But that just seems like like ridiculous to us. Of course, it's the face we would identify you by. Well, I I think identity is key here because – a mask gives one the ability to, I mean, certainly to change inner identity to a certain extent because we've, we've discussed this before with uh, in clothed cognition. Yeah. But a mask changes outer identity. Um, you look to all the various great mass traditions in human history, you know, from uh, from very, very old, very, very ancient uh, practices to even more recent uh, creations uh, such as uh, Lucha Libre masks. Mm-hmm. Like the mask changes. It transforms the individual into something else. Putting on a mask inherently suggests a kind of performance, right? Yeah. Yeah. You are becoming something other than your, you know, baseline identity. And on the, the Lucha Libre note, I do uh, recommend anyone who hasn't watched uh, one of these matches, check out a mask versus mask match, like a big one, and then watch the ending in which uh, a, generally like an older luchador will unmask. And in doing so, they will cease to be this fabulous panther person or, you know, or some other kind of exotic semi-Aztec creation, and they become this older man and 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 he'll and he'll be in tears and sometimes family members will be there in tears and even though it is all performance uh and it is uh there there is still this like there's a passion there there's a true transformation there's a loss of an established identity why is that the thing that's so emotional i mean it seems silly to ask it's so obvious to us mm-hmm. that faces are the things that are the visual marker of the identity of a person but yet again i insist it doesn't have to be that way that's just how it is biologically for some reason we are incredibly compelled by the image of the human face and it's the thing that most people tend to most associate with a human's identity right we're we're just strongly wired for faces yeah, uh, a fun note that I believe I've probably mentioned on the show before is, the, is that uh, the human face is a communications array. Input-output. Right, yeah. So it's not only for purposes of receiving communication via the organs positioned on it, but it, it also conveys. So, yeah, we've heard, for instance, uh, there was a 2008 Czech study that found that facial expressions alone speak a thousand words. Uh, we've discussed micro-expressions on the show before as well. But I always come back to an interesting point raised in a 2012 UCLA primary study. The more solitary a species, the more wild and colorful. Meanwhile, the more social primates uh, are more plain-faced because this uh, theoretically allows us to see facial expressions more easily. So yeah, you don't want like a bunch of wild colors. You want something kind of plain that you can, in which you can see all the various uh, nuances of communication. It almost makes me think of that uh, in a time when written manuscripts were rare, there was a lot of adornment and calligraphy mm-hmm. and illumination of them. And now, uh, now that they're much more common, they tend to be more utility-oriented. You just want to be able to clearly read what's on the page. Right. And of course, you still need to be able to identify individual faces because that's part of knowing who's who within a social order. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, research shows that chimps can also re- call the specific butts of other chimps That's as great. readily as we recognize specific faces. And of course, this, this I can't help since we're talking about face blindness today, I cannot help but wonder if it's possible for a chimp to experience butt blindness. 
I would venture a guess that that is a standard neurological deviation from what what chimp brains normally do. There are butt-blind chimps. <laughs> but yeah, so we are going to be talking about this concept of face blindness today. And this is a topic that's come up tangentially on the show before. But today, uh, people have asked for it, and we've decided to devote an entire episode to it. If you've never heard otherwise, you might just assume that everybody has roughly the same ability to instantly process and recognize visual face data. Maybe you assume that there's like a normal range of ability at recognizing faces. Some people are a little better at it. Some people are a little worse at it. You probably know some people who recognize every actor in a movie, some people who don't recognize people quite as easily. But you, you might just assume there's a standard range, pretty much everybody reads faces, and that's just how it is, right? Yeah, chances are... Uh, unless you've come to believe you uh, you are are better or less uh, able than other individuals, you probably think that your facial recognition is the normal level of facial recognition. And it's important to recognize that for most people, I think that normal level of facial recognition is incredibly powerful. Like it's a highly tuned neural instrument mm -hmm. that is able to read tiny variations in visual data and match that to extremely detailed amounts of uh, mental concepts and associations and memories. Like it's a truly remarkable process how easily and quickly most people are able to match faces to other information. Yeah, I, I, would, uh, I would certainly encourage everyone uh, after this episode to, to think about it as you're recognizing faces, as you're, you know, glimpsing someone you know for the first time or that fabulous uh, experience when you glimpse somebody that you think you know and then realize that you don't know them. Like it, it passes the initial uh, tests of facial recognition before it's ruled that, no, this is a stranger who just has a very similar nose to your friend. But the truth is, in fact, that not everybody is within this normal range of facial recognition ability. So the British neurologist Oliver Sacks, who wrote memorably uh, about the many ways that our brains can behave abnormally in books like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which was published in 1985, he wrote about his own problems with recognizing faces in a truly excellent 2010 article for The New Yorker. So he, he starts by talking about his childhood and he writes about how as long as he could remember, he had a hard time identifying a person by their face. Like when he was a kid, he didn't think of this as a particular neurological disorder. He just thought he was, quote, bad with faces. And, you know, as you can imagine, this would be embarrassing because he would see people he knew intimately and not recognize them on sight. Mm -hmm. What comes naturally to most people, like picking a familiar face out of a crowd, would become a difficult and laborious process. And he found he had to carefully and intentionally memorize particular features and characteristics to remember what people looked like. So somebody might have, okay, that guy's got heavy eyebrows and thick glasses and red hair, so I can log that and remember it for next time. Most of the time, people don't have to uh, use this kind of conscious effort to remember facial characteristics of people. But even then, Sack says it often didn't work. Like after his graduation, he had high school friends who could go back and look at photos of old classmates and recognize hundreds of them. And Sachs himself could not recognize a single person from his high school by their face, not one. And you might think, well, at least he'd be able to recognize his own picture, right? Not necessarily. Later in this piece, Sachs writes, quote, On several occasions, I have apologized for almost bumping into a large bearded man, only to realize that the large bearded man was myself in a mirror. The opposite situation once occurred at a restaurant. Sitting at a sidewalk table, I turned toward the restaurant window and began grooming my beard, as I often do. I then realized that what I had taken to be my reflection was not grooming himself, but looking at me oddly. Huh. You know, uh, this this does remind me, we uh, we touched on uh, self-facial recognition a little bit in uh, our most recent Ig Nobel Prizes episode, a yeah. study with twins. But with the, with the inverted ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does make one realize here, talking about uh, Oliver Sacks seeing himself in the mirror, that for the vast majority of, of human history, like self-facial recognition, like what is what is that for? When would you ever see your own face? I guess only when looking into maybe into a body of water, right? Yeah, but then only faintly. Maybe seeing aspects of your own face in, uh, you know, in biological children or in uh, your parents. But even then, you, you kind of need uh, some sort of a clear reflection that you're going off of for all that. 
I'm just going to earmark that one for later. Maybe we'll come back to considerations of self-facial recognition. No, no, no. That, that is actually really interesting because we – yeah, you're right. For most of human history, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of opportunities to see reflections of oneself except maybe when over a body of water. Mm -hmm. And one could potentially posit that modern humans who are constantly looking into reflective surfaces or looking at photos of themselves mm -hmm. – are having, in fact, their minds warped from <laughs> uh, from this constant exposure to the image of the self, whereas that's not something you would actually see maybe more than a couple times a day normally when you go to drink from a pool. Now you see it every time you go to the bathroom, every time you get up in the morning, probably more times than that. You're taking selfies all day, I bet. Maybe we'll have to come back and do an episode on Narcissus. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, so I want to zero in on some of the particulars that Oliver Sacks talks about in his own case of face blindness, because it's not just that he has trouble recognizing faces. There, there are some interesting characteristics to this condition he has. One of the things he talks about is that he has a lot more difficulty recognizing people when he sees them out of context. And an example of that might be, okay, so you have an appointment to meet a certain person at a certain place at a certain time mm -hmm. every week. And you go and when you see that person in the time and place you expect to meet them, you're pretty sure you recognize them. This is the right person. But then you could see the same person a few minutes later in a place where you don't expect to see them, maybe, you know, downstairs and around the corner and not recognize them at all. Yeah. I mean, I think how jarring it can be to run into someone in the wrong place, you know, out of place. Yeah. I'm not supposed to see a coworker at the grocery store, but it throws you, it throws you completely off. But if you had a problem, with facial, problem, a problem with facial recognition on top of that. It could be even worse because then you'd have someone who looks mostly like a stranger to you mm -hmm. saying like, oh, hi. Yeah. And you don't know how to respond. So for Sachs, the inability to recognize faces is also paired with an equally frustrating inability to recognize places. He reports that he would get lost extremely easily, even in familiar neighborhoods. And he tells a story about how one time he was trying to walk home in the rain and he walked past his own house, his own place of residence, several times in the rain before somebody yelled at him and is like, what are you doing? He thought he was lost and didn't realize he'd made it home. And this isn't just for Sachs. The environmental blindness is apparently something that a not, – not all by any means, but a significant subset of people with face blindness also experience. Another – a few other things about Sachs. He reports that members of his own family seem to have the same condition, implying that there may be some kind of genetic component. Uh, he notes that he can actually recognize caricatures of people better than photos or realistic drawings of them. Huh. Yeah. Because it's probably drawing attention to the, the sort of uh, like notable features that you would need to cue into to circumvent um, – Facial blindness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, okay, this person has enormous eyebrows and then that's the first thing that a caricature artist is going to draw, just outrageous eyebrows. It makes me wonder if there are face-blind caricature artists. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Another thing he says is that he's better at recognizing people by the way they move or what he calls, quote, their motor style than by their face. So try to imagine that if like you were better at identifying a person by their gait and their posture and, you know, the way they move their arms than by the stuff that's on the front of their head. Hmm. But this last point is something that I think is really interesting and I do want to emphasize it's been true about a lot of what I've read about face blindness or as uh, the, the proper name for face blindness is prosopagnosia and we'll get more into the general idea of agnosia in a minute. But, uh, but that Sachs says that while he has trouble recognizing individual faces or telling them apart, he's perfectly capable of recognizing things about faces like the expressions they make or – whether the face is attractive. And I think this is a crucial distinction. It's not generally that the prosopagnosic person can't see faces. It's not like it's just a blur and there's nothing there, but that they lack some kind of crucial recognition, sorting, and storage capability. And based on my reading, I think I've come up with an analogy that, that sort of makes sense for people who don't have a condition like this. Okay. Think about bushes of the same type, like holly bushes. So imagine two different holly bushes of roughly the same size. If you are a neurologically typical person, you can perfectly well see both of these bushes and describe their characteristics and you can see little things that might be different about them. But would you be able to recognize the same holly bush that you looked at a few minutes ago if it was placed in a different context? 
I mean, probably not, right? You, right. You just yeah. see a bush. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's certainly the way I feel based on my experiences with with identifying plants. I've always yeah. had a great deal of difficulty, even uh, even like determining something that I need to be aware of, like poison ivy. I have I seem to have poison ivy blindness, despite being uh, uh, very susceptible to it. Yeah. Well, because I mean, a lot of things in the plant world, your mind is not highly attuned to noticing minute differences in. So you're just seeing a lot of leaves, right? Yeah. Even though you can see them fine. There's nothing wrong with your seeing. It's a problem with like discerning little differences and recognizing those differences. Now, earlier you mentioned the idea, could a caricature artist uh, have face blindness? Well, I don't know about caricature artists, but we do have uh, one very notable example of an artist with face blindness. Yeah. Sachs actually talks about this in his article, but the artist Chuck Close mm -hmm. is known for having prosopagnosia. So he can't recognize people by their faces. And yet, what is the art he's most known for? It is these huge very detailed sort of photorealistic portraits of people's faces. Yeah, which is which has always fascinated me because you do see this this contemplation of what it is to identify a face in his work. Yeah. I think this also sort of highlights the thing I was just saying about the holly bushes, right? It's not that you don't see the face, but that you, it's some kind of storage and recognition and sorting problem. Like he apparently can see faces great because he, he does amazing – like he sees more detail in a face than I do. Mm-hmm. But again, this comes back to the, the the truth that he he is not. It's not that he cannot see the face. Yeah, he just he he processes the information of the face in a different way. Right. Another interesting example of a famous person with prosopagnosia is Jane Goodall. I don't think I was aware that uh, Jane Goodall had face blindness. Yeah, Sachs writes about her and she – so she says, quote, I've had huge problems with people with average faces. <laughs> I have to search for a mole or something. So she's saying like I have to find some kind of unique identifying characteristic to remember, you know. Yeah, when there is a uniformity of, uh, of photo style and personal styling, it can be – rather difficult. I've, for instance, I've had this situation where I'll go on IMDb and I'll try to figure out who a particular actor is in a film. Yeah. And, and then you start looking at the, the headshots. Is this the person? Yeah. It's yeah. like sometimes there'll be five or six people in a film that have essentially the same headshot. Like it's this, because they're all styled in the same way. They have kind of the same facial features. And I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about your, your Ron Perlman's here. I'm talking about your, your leading man, leading lady material. Like sometimes there is a, an uncomfortable uniformity to uh, the dimensions of the face and the way that they are styled and photographed. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's no denying that certain faces are easier to recognize than others, mm -hmm. right? Some just appear more distinctive and other people have more generic or average types of features given a certain population. One of the things that this makes me think about, though, is that for people with typical face recognition skills, I think it might not immediately be apparent how problematic this could be. Being typical, I think, sometimes leaves you in a position where you're not prone to imagine the difficulties that people in atypical conditions have to work through. Indeed, we tend to think of it as a bedrock aspect of our reality, but we're not in the world as it is. We're in the world as we perceive it, the yeah. world constructed via the instruments of our perception. And if one of those instruments is out of tune, it changes the world. Yeah. I mean, Sachs actually says that he thinks some of what his entire life has been interpreted as his shyness or his social ineptitude, uh, his eccentricity, or even his Asperger's syndrome is actually a consequence of his difficulty with recognizing people's faces. And many people over the years contacted him with similar comments that, you know, really what was going on with them in their lives is they had trouble recognizing people by their faces, whereas all the people around them did not have this trouble. And this was interpreted by people around them as them being rude or aloof or worse. Anyway, I guess we can take a quick break, and then when we come back, we can talk about the condition of generalized agnosias. All right, we're back. So today we've been talking about prosopagnosia or face blindness. And prosopagnosia seems to be a specific manifestation of a more generalized condition known as agnosia, which is a failure to recognize something. Yeah, agnosia is a, a broad category of uh, stimuli transmission scrambling conditions. So it's a, it's a rare area of neural disorder that disrupts the ability to process sensory information. And this includes such specific uh, conditions as phone agnosia, or voice blindness, uh -huh. uh, as well as, of course, uh, uh, prosopagnosia, face blindness, which we're focusing on today. 
And uh, there are a number of other varieties as well. Uh, I actually ran across a really interesting one when I, when I was trying to figure out these characters that pop up in R. Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse Saga, these, uh, these non-men, which oh, are yeah. essentially the, the, the elves of his world. I remember you talking to uh, Scott about those and you were saying, I think, that they couldn't see art or something? Right. They, well, they couldn't see paintings. Okay. Uh, it's, and this is something that uh, a human character says of the, the non-men. Uh, so I was curious. I was like, well, what could that consist of? What could make someone be enabled to, to see uh, two-dimensional art that would make you have to rely on three-dimensional art? Mm-hmm. And of course, this brought me to the, the, the realm of agnosia. Uh, there are a number of cases that relate uh, directly to the cognitive experience of music as well as various forms of visual, communi- uh, visual information. Uh-huh. And uh, I actually ran across a 1978 case of an artist who, following an accident, developed an inability, quote, to identify single objects on visual presentation and displayed marked difficulty in interpreting complex objects objects, depicted scenes, and partially occluded figures. So he could still recognize geometric forms, perceive optical illusions, and copy designs. And he, he could, in fact, he could, in fact, utilize many of his artistic skills, but his post-injury work exhibited, quote, an over-elaboration of detail. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned he could copy designs. So this tells you there's not really a problem with the seeing aspect if he's just trying to copy, like, lines and shading and stuff like that. But it's a problem with the recognizing aspect of the brain, what the brain does with the visual information once it comes in. Now, uh, as you mentioned, I did get the chance to actually ask Scott about the non-men and their inability to see paintings in uh, one of our 2017 interviews with him. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I thought I would just uh, cut out his answer here and, uh, and read it for everyone. Uh, he says, quote, you always want to distinguish your various races and species uh, you create in speculative fiction. And this notion of non-men not being able to see two-dimensional visual representations is a textual detail along those lines, but it actually does have a rationale. Just think of the cavemen in Chevet in France. They dragged their charcoal-stained fingers across the cave walls for the first time, and realizing they could see a shape in that, they experimented. It turns out for humans, we can actually see horses and bison and figures of humans given a very, very small amount of visual information. A finger covered in charcoal dragged across a cave wall is enough for us to be able to recognize a lion or a horse. The famous horses of Chevet are a wonderful example of this. For non-men, their ability to cue cognition of scenes simply requires a bit more information and particularly requires depth information. So they can see representations the way we can. They just have difficulty with two-dimensional representations just simply because the amount of information that is given in two-dimensional representation isn't enough to actually cue the cognitive systems involved in recognizing horses and tigers and what have you. So it's just one of many ways in which my blind brain theory has sort of nuanced the background and the landscape of the novels. So there Scott's referring to his idea that like the brain doesn't understand the mechanisms by which it generates the uh, recognitions or sensations or perceptions. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I should also uh, just add in passing that his 2008 novel Neuropath actually has a character in it uh, that 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 has face blindness and it, it pops up as a minor plot point. Now, I mentioned music earlier, uh, and I, I should mention that uh, that we do have an earlier episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, titled Minds of Musical Emptiness that explores the conditions of amusia and auditory agnosia. Uh, auditory agnosia basically breaks down into two different forms. Uh, there's the classical form, which entails environmental sound. So uh, you hear a bird or a car, but you're unable to process the sound. And then there's also interpretive or receptive agnosia, which entails music. Hmm. So uh, basically what I'm trying to drive home here is that like you see some version of this with various forms of stimuli. Uh, there's finger agnosia, uh, inability to recognize the fingers of the hand. <laughs> um, there's a time agnosia, inability to interpret the passing of time. And then semantic agnosia, uh, which has, is essentially object blindness. So like you can see an object, but it doesn't doesn't register to you what that object is. Yeah, yeah. So and again, I think all of this underlies just what our perceived reality really is, that it is very much this perceived reality and it is not this bedrock reality that so many of us assume that it is. Yeah. And as we've been hammering on, it's not just when it's visual information, it's not just sight. It's not just normal visual recognition. A lot of the things we do require kind of specialized, evolved superpowers, which 
most people have. Most people have this superpower for recognizing and categorizing thousands of faces. But how does it happen that some of us don't have this superpower? Before we uh, we, we go uh, any further here, I do want to uh, point out that there uh, there was an episode of the Hannibal television series, uh, season one, episode ten, actually. This is the Eating People one. Yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, which is a very fun series, but you know about Hannibal Lecter. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, the, uh, based on the the Red Dragon novel, and they kind of roll that out and bring in characters and, and situations from other books, while also just creating this universe of crazy, dramatic serial killers. So is it kind of like an Oliver Sacks book, but they eat the person at the end of each chapter? <laughs> sort of, yeah. Uh, but this particular episode was, is notable because, again, there's a character with face blindness. And so when Hannibal walks into the room, we get their uh, POV view. And all they see is like a, a Hannibal with a featureless face, just like a skin face. And it's very creepy and, and, and effective in the television episode. But based on everything we've discussed here, this does not seem to be what facial blindness actually is. Right. Or no, at least in most cases we've read about. And right. Everybody's different. There, there may actually be perception problems in how some people process faces. Yeah. But uh, most of the cases that I've read about don't seem to be perception problems. They're recognition problems. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should also uh, add that the character that has face blindness in that episode also suffers from Cotard syndrome, oh. which we did an episode on. This is when you believe that you're uh, a corpse. Yeah. Or believe in some other sense that you sort of don't exist. Right. So, uh, I, I, you know, Hannibal is, was a fun television series in that it trotted out a, lot, a number of these ideas. Uh, but sometimes, as one might expect from a network television uh, horror drama, uh, they're not going to maybe utilize those ideas to a, a depth that fully illuminates uh, what they are. Yeah, you get a kind of sensationalized version that's more towards fulfilling the plot. Now, I've, I've, I was reading one—I don't know about you, Joe, but when, uh, when I was reading about uh, face blindness, it's frequently mentioned that— uh, cases of or observation of face blindness that uh, they date back to antiquity. Yeah, though maybe not recognized as a neurological right, condition. Right. But yeah, I mean, I think about uh, there's a story I believe, if I'm remembering right, in the Gospel of Luke, where uh, uh, where after Jesus has died and then resurrected, some people walk with him for a while on the road, and then after he leaves, they're like, "Wait a minute, that was Jesus." <laughs> It's like, wait a minute, why didn't they recognize him? And you got to wonder, like, wait, was this supposed to be a person with face blindness? Huh. Well, um, I didn't run across any commentary on that, but I did find a 2014 paper from the Journal for the Study of the New Testament uh, that mentions face blindness. Uh, This is from author Brian R. Glenny, who uh, ponders the implications of Mark 8, uh, verses 22 through 26. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, so this is a, this is a, a reading from that. I believe this is a, the King James Version. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he uh, had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him uh, if, he has, if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands to, uh, again upon his eyes, and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. Hmm. So uh, in, in this, Glenny ponders uh, this double he- uh, healing here in which Jesus first appears to heal the optical and then the cognitive blindness in the individual. Okay, so first he makes him able to see and then makes him able to recognize. Right. So he says, quote, without facial recognition, however, many people appear tree-like because trees closely resemble the human body without facial features. Thus, the blind man's own report provides suggestive evidence that the first healing clears away cataracts providing full optical sight, but it fails to enable him cognitively to identify the faces of people, thus leaving the middle blind man in the condition of, uh, of prosopagnosia. I think that's a really interesting interpretation on the verse. Another way you could interpret it is that he's more like in the middle position that Han Solo's in at the big <laughs> fight in Return of the Jedi uh-huh. where he says like, you know, I, I see a big light spot or a big dark spot or something. Yes, yes. So, yeah, maybe that's what's going on. Like he's like, I, I don't see detail yet. I just see like shapes moving around. Pointy shapes. But no, I like the prosopagnosia interpretation. That's interesting. 
But that's all I was really able to find in terms of cases of face blindness in antiquity. Uh, so if there are better examples out there that listeners are aware of, let us know. We would love to hear them. Well, we should look at a little bit about the history of prosopagnosia. So it was extensively studied, I think, first in its acquired form, which it, in which it's believed to be pretty rare, right? Like people with acquired prosopagnosia aren't all that common. But more recently, it's become clear that there is an inherited or developmental form of prosopagnosia, which exists from birth or early childhood and is not caused by injury or disease. And this can be spread from parents to children and is much more common than the, the acquired version. Right, because the acquired version, again, is going to depend upon a particular injury or disease damaging the brain and affecting cognition. Uh, and of course, we see we see plenty of, of examples of studies that deal with individuals that you know they've sustained some sort of damage. It's changed the way their brain works, and the study of that change illuminates how a healthy brain works. Now, generalized visual agnosia was medically recognized at least as far back in, as the 1890s, but uh, specific types of visual agnosia for specific classes of images like faces or places, that wasn't really recognized until later in like the late 1940s when the German neurologist Joachim Bodemer uh, described three patients who were unable to recognize faces but had no other neurological problems with recognition, just faces. So if you've got many people who independently report a condition in which the only thing wrong with you is that you can't recognize faces, but you can recognize everything else, mm -hmm. that seems to indicate there's probably a discrete, specialized function in the brain for face recognition that can be impaired, right? That would seem to be the case. And so autopsies on people who died with acquired prosopagnosia, which was the more studied version first, were amazingly consistent. They almost all show lesions on the same region of the brain, which is the right hemisphere, which is often thought of as the visual hemisphere, the right hemisphere visual association cortex, which is down on the bottom of the occipitotemporal cortex and specifically uh, in a place called the fusiform gyrus. So that's a lot of terminology, but generally if you're picturing the brain, it's going to be down near the bottom, sort of between the back and the middle of the brain. And so that was established in autopsies, but CT scanning and MRI on live patients actually revealed the same thing while people were still alive. They if they had face blindness, they tended to have lesions on the right hemisphere visual association cortex, which eventually came to be known as the fusiform face area. And then in the 1990s, fMRI studies showed that when people were actively looking at pictures of faces as opposed to pictures of other things like inanimate objects, this fusiform face region showed increased activity. Now here's a question about underlying causes. Why do many people with face blindness also seem to have location blindness, difficulty recognizing physical locations like Oliver Sacks described in himself and many of uh, many of the other people he talked to with this condition. Like, are these processes maybe mediated by the same brain region being turned to different tasks? Or is it merely adjacent brain regions where a lesion in one region or, or some other abnormality in one region could easily stretch over into the other? This leads us to the idea that some researchers think maybe prosopagnosia is not so inherently a problem with faces, but a specific example of a more generalized problem in which people have difficulty telling items within a specific category apart, and that category has something to do with expert knowledge, expert mm -hmm. visual recognition. And this brings us to the Vanderbilt cognitive neuroscientist Isabel Gauthier. So in a 1999 paper in Nature Neuroscience called Activation of the Middle Fusiform Face Area Increases with Expertise in Recognizing Novel Objects, Gauthier and colleagues start by pointing out that there's a section of the ventral temporal lobe, or what we were talking about before, the occipitotemporal cortex, that both brain imaging studies and neurophysiological studies, as we mentioned, have shown is crucial for processing human faces. And there have been some other curious findings up to this point preceding their research in 99. And they found out that inversion of the images, so inversion, like flipping upside down, is more detrimental to the recognition of faces than to other types of objects. And they also recognized that upright faces are recognized more holistically than other objects. However, more research showed that these conditions were also true about non-face objects for people who had expertise in those objects. Like if you are a dog show judge 
and you look at pictures of dogs, they seemed to, for some reason, obey these same inversion rules that other people showed with looking at pictures of faces. Hmm. It was like if if you're a dog show expert, then looking at a dog is kind of like a normal person looking at a face. So is this area of the brain really dedicated solely to faces or does it have other potential? Could the fusiform face area actually be a more general visual expertise area? And the fact is that most people are just primarily experts at faces. Well, the uh, well, Gauthier and her colleagues came up with an interesting way of testing this. They made some greebles. Greebles? Greebles. Robert, I think I've got a picture of greebles for you to look at. This is not greebles in the, uh, in the Imperial Star Destroyer sense. <laughs> All right. Well, th- these look like abstract goblins. That's kind of what I get from them. Yeah. What are they? They remind me of a very specific abstract goblin, actually, but I can't recall exactly what it is. Uh, well, they also kind of look like the. They look like something Jim Henson would create. They also remind me of that that squeezy doll that uh, would where you squeeze it and its eyeballs pop out. Forget what that toy was was called. Classic American toy. You're exactly right. Nedry had one in Jurassic Park that he was squeezing. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So greebles are novel objects with weird details that people could be trained over time to have expertise in, uh, in categorizing and recognizing. And they're not faces; they're just things with arrangements of details, right? Mm-hmm. Though they do. Kind of look like noses and horns. Some of them look more like noses and horns. Some of them just look kind of like spiky totem poles, right? Yeah. So the researchers, they made these greeble images that were these weird spiky totem pole things. And then they used fMRI to scan the brains of test subjects who had variable expertise in greebles while viewing greebles passively and in a categorization task. And the results were, quote, acquisition of expertise with novel objects, meaning greebles, led to increased activation of the right hemisphere face areas for matching of upright greebles as compared to matching inverted greebles. The same areas were also more activated in experts than in novices during passive viewing of greebles. So expertise seems to be one factor that leads to specialization in the face area. So they use this to suggest that visual expertise recruits the fusiform gyrus or the face area. And then there was another interesting study by Gauthier and colleagues in Nature Neuroscience in 2000 where they they did a kind of similar experiment. They uh, tested the brains of people who had visual expertise in subjects like cars and birds compared to people who did not. And what they found was that car experts, bird experts, and regular subjects all showed activation of the fusiform face area when looking at human faces – But car experts also showed activation of the same region when looking at cars, and bird watchers showed the same when looking at birds. So it looks like what's going on according to these results is that everybody uses this fusiform face area to see faces and immediately recognize them. But if you are really good at picking out details and differences of objects in a certain category, maybe you're an expert in the different kinds of troll dolls or something Mm -hmm. like that, when you look at the troll dolls, then you recruit this special face processing center of the brain to take take advantage of its expertise and say, I want to see as much detail in the differences between troll dolls as I would normally see in the differences between human faces. Huh, interesting. And there's an interesting corollary of this that Sachs points out in his New Yorker article. If an expert bird spotter gets an injury leading to acquired prosopagnosia, they will probably also lose their ability to recognize birds. Oh, man. But I think it's also worth stressing that the fusiform face region doesn't work alone because other findings have shown that this face area is basically it's a vital part of the face recognition system, but it's not the whole system. It's part of a chain of neural activity passing between different brain regions from the occipital cortex to the prefrontal cortex and through through the whole process of seeing someone associating the face with information and memory, generating a feeling of familiarity – So another takeaway from this would be that it's possible you could have other forms or variants of face blindness without damage to the fusiform face area if some other part of the face recognition pathway is failing. But again, we come back to the realization the brain is a a complex integrated system and uh, and it's very difficult to isolate just one area that is involved in some sort of, uh, uh, you know, complex uh, sensory computation. Yeah, you can very often identify areas that are vital for something but also peripherally depend on other areas. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a break. And when we come back, we will discuss uh, the issue of 
treatment and potential treatment for individuals with face blindness. All right, we're back. So in 2014, a team of researchers published a, uh, a review called Face Processing Improvements in Prosopagnosia, Successes and Failures Over the Last 50 Years, in which they tried to look into what, what have we turned up in terms of possible treatments for prosopagnosia. Yeah, and basically, the one of the big take-homes is that there are no hard and fast cures. Yeah, there's um, no there's no real total cure yet. Yeah, there's not a there's not a pill you can take. There's not a procedure that can be performed. Uh, but uh, according to the study, some methods and training techniques do seem to help. So for acquired prosopagnosia, quote, strategic compensatory training such as verbalizing distinctive facial features, unquote, is effective. Okay, so that would be like saying, I want to remember what Robert looks like, so I remember he has, and you start naming things out loud about your face. Right, right. For, for instance, with me, sideburns would probably be a key indicator. You know, what is the thing about this person that I can latch on to to help me remember them? Mm -hmm. Another example from the paper is uh, encoding the faces in conjunction with details about the performance. Profession, you know, okay. like, like this is this person is a doctor, and that is a doctor's nose, I suppose. Okay, yeah. So you're you're like creating associative helpers. Yeah, yeah. You're you're sort of tweaking the informational system uh, so that you can better remember who this person is and how they fit into your life. Now, though there is no known reliable cure, people have recovered pr from prosopagnosia before. Yeah, yeah. We've, we have seen spontaneous full and partial recovery. Uh, and this is a major area of consideration for researchers, obviously. Right. Like what happened there? Yeah, what happened? What can we learn from this, this recovery? Um, for the most part, however, it seems clear that, quote, the face processing system once damaged is not easily remediated even in a young plastic brain. Uh, that being one of the, the major findings of uh, Ellison Young from 1988. So, I mean, that's kind of the bad news here, right? Like, even if it's a young, healthy brain that has a lot of plasticity that that that, that can or come back, uh, bounce back from various injuries, uh, there's not a lot of room to bounce back from this. But there have been these studies that seem at least to show some uh, some moderate improvements or improvement by degrees. Right. I mean, especially when we get out of the acquired area and get into the, the truly de developmental area. Yeah. So for children with uh, developmental uh, prosopagnosia, uh, some of these methods also work. For adults with, de uh, with developmental pro prosopagnosia, remedial training and oxytocin uh, administration has resulted in improvement. improvement. Oxytocin, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Still, there are no widely accepted treatments. Most individuals ultimately have to develop their own strategies, uh, sometimes with the aid of these established uh, methods. Now, one of the things that uh, people might not realize is that the acquired while the acquired version seems to be pretty rare, the developmental version is actually pretty common. Multiple studies I've read have found somewhere around like 2 to 2.5 percent of the general population have some degree of prosopagnosia. Yeah, I, I, I know one individual in my own like real world life that uh... – that, uh, that, that claims to have a certain level of face blindness. Yeah. yeah. And so while there aren't uh, really totally reliable known treatments yet, one thing that could certainly help is if other people are more accommodating yes. <laughs> to people who have face blindness. Like don't necessarily conclude that someone is rude or something like that if they don't immediately recognize you. It's possible that they have prosopagnosia. Yeah. Another thing that you could possibly do to help people with prosopagnosia, it's a very simple way, is just to identify yourself when you meet them. Yeah. You know, you instead of just saying like, hey, you say, hey, it's me, Joe. Good to see you. And I, I realize that can be difficult, though, because you, uh, like, I, I, I have a lot of, uh, I guess, social anxiety that kicks in in situations like this. I don't want to sound like I think you forgot my name. You know? mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah so. I mean, I guess that, that one's easier to do if you know the person has prosopagnosia. It would be more awkward saying that to people who don't have it. And Yeah. But, but, I, but seriously, there are people that I – I mean, not people I know closely, but, but people that I know who they are, but I either didn't learn their name or didn't really catch, catch on, but it's too late. I can never introduce myself to them again. And I can never ask what their name is again. We're just doomed to uh, awkwardly run into each other and not say each other's names. Oh, yeah. I, I know that problem. Like I'm constantly recognizing faces but forgetting the name. Yeah. Uh, there's a, somebody, there's a, this guy at work that has the same problem. Uh, what's his name? <laughs> but, 
But uh, no, uh, another uh, like small thing. This is like such a no brainer, really. But uh, like name tags, especially in uh, in like large group situations, parties. Churches, community groups—you know—it's we become accustomed to seeing like the name tag table, Mm -hmm. and I've I have found myself falling into the situation where I'm like, I don't need to fill out a name tag. Well, what do I want a name tag for? You know, but really, that's one way you could be marginally helpful to individuals who have uh, trouble with faces. I agree. Yeah. So those are some of the sort of everyday implications. But what what are some of the more uh, interesting uh, implications of face blindness? You know, one of the things that Sachs talks about in his article is that the recognition of a visual arrangement like a face or a place is not just seeing all of the parts and seeing them together. It's not just taking in the data of shapes and colors. It's connecting that visual data to some sense of meaning, right? It's a feeling or a word or a concept and association with other words and concepts and feelings. For example, the feeling of familiarity upon seeing someone is a crucial part of the face recognition system, right? When you have a face recognition system, you don't just see a person and then know their name and who they are. You see a person, you know their name and who they are, and you think, I will approach them because I know this person. Or avoid them because I know this person. Right. Either way. But either way, that's an emotion. The feeling actually matters and it's it's an important part of what recognition is. So actually, the, the way Sachs puts it is that, you know, recognition is based on knowledge. I associate information with that face, while familiarity is based on feeling. I should walk up and say hi. And you can actually have one without the other both ways. You can see a person and you can have the feeling without the knowledge, or you could have the knowledge without the feeling. Prosopagnosia seems to cause a loss of both, uh, but there are people who have conditions like hyperfamiliarity of faces. There's actually a known neurological condition where people are constantly seeing faces that they don't actually recognize, but having the feeling of knowing the person. Oh, yes. And so it's like, I don't know who you are, but I feel like I know you and you. I want to walk up and say hi. And there, there are sometimes people who just greet all kinds of people. On the other side of the coin, you can have Capgras syndrome, right, where people recognize faces of people they know, but they do not experience the feeling of familiarity and thus believe that though this looks like my loved one, this person has been replaced by an imposter. I don't feel like I actually know them. Now, of course, looking forward into the future, uh, again, we do not have any hard, fast treatments for uh, for face blindness currently. But uh, it's been pointed out that in treating it, in learning to treat it, mm-hmm. in in questing after an effective treatment for it, we are in effect uh, questing after a way to treat autism, uh, Williams syndrome, schizophrenia, and various age-related cognitive declines, uh, all of which may entail facial recognition difficulties. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, as previously discussed, the, the study of face blindness is also the study of 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 normal facial recognition. The more we understand what's not working, the more we understand functional facial recognition. And from there, the possibilities extend beyond the realm of medical science and into AI and robotics, where facial recognition is and will continue to be crucial. Oh, yeah. And here here are a few sort of outside thoughts uh, to get a little, uh, I guess, comic booky and all. But what if we do figure out a way to treat it? Uh, I wonder if if this also opens the door for enhanced facial recognition, the creation of the sort of super seers uh, that we've uh, referenced previously. Uh, And what else would be possible? Recreational heightened ability to see abstract patterns as forms and symbols? (laughs) Heightened uh, musical hearing? I mean, really, the possibilities of tuning the instruments that create the world around us. Um, they're, they're, They're almost limitless possibilities there. I think this is something that's actually underexplored in our superhero literature. Yeah. Often when our superheroes have cognitive enhancements, it might be like super intelligence. More often it's super perception, right? Mm -hmm. So they can see through things or they can see super far or something like that. What's underexplored is super recognition. What if they have normal sense data, but they are abnormally uh, able to match that sense data with relevant other information in the mind? Hmm. 
I would also it would also be interesting if you had more comic book characters that you know because often there's a there's a trade off right mm-hmm. they have this superpower but it also means that they uh, you know can't touch somebody without catching them on fire or whatnot it would be interesting <laughs> to have more um, is that a superhero well so, sort of the, the human flame is kind of like that right oh, I guess okay. he can turn it on flame on flame off but uh, yeah. But, not not so for Doctor Burnin, <laughs> but it would be interesting if uh, and maybe and for all I know there is there there is a comic book character that employs this where there are sensory trade offs. Mm-hmm. I, I can't come up with any great examples off the top of my head, but uh, but it seems like the sensory realm of superheroes is not all that well explored. I agree. Get more creative than X Ray Vision. Come on, <laughs> you know, or seeing far, you know, yeah. hearing, uh, having great hearing, great great eyesight. That tends to be the extent of it, right? It's just whatever we have. Um, doubled or tripled. Right. The the superhero should have the power not of super hearing, but of super match that tune. <laughs> you know, they always know what that song is. Yeah, they're not useful on most Avengers missions, but every now and then the perfect mission presents itself. I'm sure it does. It's often in the car when they've got the radio going. Yes. <laughs> uh, so one thing I definitely want to say is that I want to hear from our listeners out there who have various degrees of prosopagnosia. Statistically, if it's Two to two point five percent of the general population. We know we must have there. There's got to be a lot of you out there. So I'd love to hear what your experiences are like. In what ways do they line up? Not line up with what we talked about today? Uh, have you come up with any interesting strategies for for compensating for this in your life? And generally, what's it like? Yeah, we have listener mail episodes coming up, and we'd love to share your experiences with everyone else. All right. In the meantime, be sure to check out stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes episodes, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts as well. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, or to let us know about your experiences with prosopagnosia, or just to say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.